I-94 on Lumpen Radio. All right, folks. As you probably figured out, you are sitting at Pills and Community Books. Welcome to Pills and Community Books, everybody. My name is Jamie Trecker. I am joined here by Jeremy Kitchen and Michael Sack for another edition, a live edition of I-94. Tonight, we are joined by the author of this little book right here. It is called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. It is from Harper Perennial. Please, please give a very warm Pills and Community Books welcome to Tori Telfer. (laughs) All right, let the roasting begin. (laughs) Tori, first of all, I'd like to start off by asking you, what made you want to write a book about serial killers in the first place, and then female serial killers after that? Well, male serial killers were never really a question for me. Um, I am actually, ironically, a very cowardly person. I'm very scared of a lot of things. Um, My entire family is shocked that I've written a book about serial killers at all. Um, But I did always have sort of a yen for weird historical figures. Like, I've said this before on the internet, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I loved Nero, the Roman emperor, who was just completely off his rocker. So... um, When it came time, I was about, I guess, 25 or 26, and I saw that this website, The All, was looking for uh, historical columns, and I racked my brain and just kind of thought that female serial killers would be fun. I found out about Ursabet Bathory, um, who is a real bad one, and that's how it started. Nothing more magical than that. Every metalhead knows about Bathory. Of course, yeah. There's the phenomenal German black metal band Bathory that... I listen to. I don't know. If, hey, I listen to them too. I mean, some of you guys listen to they. Uh, this entire crowd listens to black metal. What are you talking yeah, about, Jeremy? And they're basically a one-man band that never toured, but they've been pretty, uh, pretty influential on black metal and metal in general. Um, I did want to mention too. Um, I, as some of you know, I'm a librarian, and I did some. I went to the FBI's uh, database and looked up some statistics. And um, although white males have historically been the uh, number one uh, serial killer profile. Um, African-American males have now taken uh, the lead with 59.8% of the serial killer population. Uh, White males at 30.8. And then Hispanics, Asians, and Native Americans. uh, Hispanic, 8.5. Asian, 0.9. And there are currently zero known Native American serial killers. And I also want to mention, too, that women... um, currently make up 11% of the serial killers in America. And according to the FBI database, 35, there's 30, any given time, there's 35 to 50 known serial killers in the United States. Um, as you, uh, I'm known as the malcontent on the show. I have a friend who used to work at the Cook County Morgue, and he's told me stories about uh, signatures that people knew, but a lot of the victims were, you know, basically the forgotten homeless destitute, drug addicts, prostitutes. Um, But there was actually, um, prior to the Saw movies, there was actually a serial killer in Chicago that was murdering their victims and cutting a jigsaw puzzle off the skin. And the coroner at the Cook County lab showed him several examples of this on different people, so legs, arms. Um, And so that'll rock you to sleep at night. Um, (laughs) But currently right now we're at about 11% for women. But um, one of the things Tori talks about in the book, and we'll, we'll get into more, is you know we don't talk about, uh, aside from uh, Eileen Warnos, the mm-hmm. I'm sure many of you seen Monster, um, you know, uh, you know the Manson family women. I, I, 
you know, is a spree killer, a serial killer. You know, there's there's debates about that. Um, I, I've been obsessed with serial killers <laughs> since I was like in eighth grade and I'm 47. So I, I unfortunately know way too much about this stuff. But um, uh, why don't we uh, start out with Bathory? And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Um, there's a lot of uh, myth about her, mm-hmm. you were saying in your yes. book online. So let's get a little taste of uh, what Bathory was all about. I'm not sure how to pronounce her first name. Um, so. Ursabet, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, Bathory, yeah, there's a ton of myth around Bathory, which made it made the writing of the chapter tough. She she's a black metal icon. Um, she's a 15th or a 1500s Hungarian countess who um, had many castles and a torture chamber in each castle where she would brutally uh, torture and eventually kill her servant girls. And, you know, this was Hungary in the 1500s. Servant, your servant girls had no rights. Um, no one cared that they went missing. She really didn't start. She was suspected of her crimes for a while. The townspeople knew weird things were happening in the castle. But she really didn't start getting in trouble until she started killing uh, the children, you know, the teen girls of the nobles. Because rumor has it she was running out of young peasant girls to kill. So back then, the serfs... A.K.A. Right. souls were not, they were disposable. So if she was killed, you know, it, it's uh, like we were talking about earlier with the jigsaw killer. You know, when people don't, I don't want to say don't care, but when they're not. Well, I don't even think their legal system allowed for, for peasants to Well, yeah, it was legal to beat them, right? Yeah, it was legal yeah. to beat them. Um, it was, you know, vaguely illegal for peasants to say anything against their masters. So the entire system made it very easy for a killer like Bathory to just... Is she the one who, who the king owed money to? She yes. lent money to, yes. to the yeah. king of Hungary? She was fabulously wealthy. We should point out. She's fabulously wealthy. Enormously wealthy. Enormously wealthy. Um, legendarily beautiful. So I'll just tell you the flip side of the Bathory story slash legend. Um, there are people who believe that she was framed because the king owed her so much money, um, because she was a wealthy and powerful widow, um, because she was Protestant and the king was Catholic. The, the, you know, the rumors go on. Um, so there are trial transcripts, and her ser- she had this little torture squad of four servants who helped her. So we have trial transcripts of those servants saying really damning things about her. That being said, the confessions are extracted via torture. So the whole thing is so messy. And uh, there's a lot of rumor like that she bathed in blood, which is not true. Sorry, death metal heads. <laughs> <laughs> so but disappointing. She, you know, we, should, we should point that out, though, because you make an interesting point. You know, women during that time period, especially people who are very wealthy and very powerful, were always at risk of being accused of various things in order to get their money and get their power. And we witchcraft kind of, was... Right, yeah. witchcraft, I'm thinking witchcraft, but, uh, you know, gruesome spree killing also kind of goes there, <laughs> right, guys? So, uh, you know, that's something, you know, Bathory, it seems that she was one of the very first serial killers that we know of but there's an interesting sociological thing to tease out here because women's power has always been circumscribed by wealthier men and that was certainly mm-hmm. the case especially when you are the bank to to the king <laughs> right I, right she was dangerous she was dangerous i, I also want to point out a, a, and when serial killers are profiled most of them had abominable childhoods and a lot of childhood trauma and and tori has a couple of stories in here one thing uh there's a story that she saw a man getting sewn into the stomach of a horse yeah. for the, the crime of theft. And then there's another story that she got impregnated by 
uh, a 15, she was, oh, no, I'm sorry. When she was 10, she was engaged to an, a 15-year-old. She got pregnant by a peasant. And uh, according to the story, he was castrated and then threw to a pack of wild dogs and eaten for <laughs> getting her pregnant because he was not part of the aristocracy. Um, so she did, you know, I can't imagine getting married at 10 years old, seeing people getting sewn into the stomachs of horses and having your <laughs> right. the person impregnated you when you were a little kid get eaten by a wild pack of dogs and castrated. I don't know if she viewed that, but it, it can't be that great for the psyche. Right, so. yeah. Um, she definitely came up in a really violent time. Um, you know, torture was common. Um, punishments really did not fit the crime. See, being sewn into the stomach of a horse for theft. <laughs> but I... I I do think some of the stories about her, like take them with a grain of salt because they could be the kind of thing where in retrospect people, you know, ex uh, exaggerated or came up with legends. Like she was very, one of the myths about her is that she was just voraciously sexual and that was why she, something about her beating these servant girls was like a sexual thing. Um, so the, the story of her getting pregnant by a servant boy is very salacious, like in some sources, you know, that it's like, he was very well endowed, and I suspect that that might be one of those retroactive, making her sound more nymphomaniacal than she really was. That uh, that brings up a good point. A lot of these, well, I don't know how many, several of the of the women profiled in your book go back three, four centuries, even even more. Um, there had to be a lot of sources and probably a lot of conflicting sources. How did you? Um, How'd you not go crazy? <laughs> and how did you sort them out? Yeah. Sort out the sources? Yeah. Um, one by one, chapter by chapter. I I really like dealing with old sources. It feels very, you know, detective-y. And I feel like, you know, a primary source, you just can, like, have a sigh of relief. Did you have like, to go to special libraries? Or you know, I wish I could... A little bit, but a lot is online now where you can get a library to send you a scan. So yeah. I was spoiled. You know I'm a librarian, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I owe you and your people <laughs> so much. I'm just teasing. Well, that, it, you know, talking about sources, there was uh, the first mention of the bloodbaths that were pinned on her came from a 1729 book called Tragica Historia that was written by a Jesuit scholar after he discovered the Bathory trial transcripts, and it's believed that he made it up, correct? Yeah, yeah, there's no, the bloodbath rumor is really popular. I mean, it's a good story. It um, makes her sound a little vampiric. But from the the confessions from the servants that I was mentioning earlier, um, no one mentions a bloodbath, and they even mention that she spilled so much blood during torture that she would have to change her shirt. Gross. So, which shows that she didn't care. She wasn't collecting the blood, you know. She was uh, splattering it. Splattering it, yeah. So I don't know why this Jesuit scholar came up with that story. That's Jesuits the weirdest. Have seen some Maybe because she was Protestant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Could it have been though that when she became kind of popularized again, there was a wave of kind of contemporary horror fiction because she was kind of rediscovered during the age of uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and you know Dracula, Frankenstein, Bram Stoker, and stuff like that. And that would have been a very uh, Irresistible detail, Absolutely. in a sense, to, to put in there. Yes. So, and I think that gets back to the point. I, I'd love to know a little more about what sources you went to, because some of the details in this stuff are irresistible. So what, mm -hmm. just take us through a little bit of what primary sources you were using for some of this stuff. Was it old newspapers? Was it you know old books? I mean, there, I don't think there were any first-person accounts unless, you know, 
Um, We're talking about no. some of the more contemporary people in your book. Yeah. Um, are you talking about sources for the whole book? Yeah, or just, just in general. Yeah. Um, a lot of old newspapers, um, you know, sort of from the mid 1800s on, I was able to find, you know, those primary sources. Um, for a couple of these women, there was already a book written about them, like for the um, Angel Makers, um, which maybe we'll get to later. Uh, There's another Hungarian group of serial killers and a Scot, like an academic had already written a book in English, but he was Hungarian about them. So that was sort of, he'd used the primary sources, which I then gleaned from. Um, so it really varied per killer because the times, you know, when they killed were so different. The oldest one in the book is from the 1300s, Alice Kiteller. And I was able to find a source. So there's a source in Latin about the man who persecuted her. And I was able to find a sor a more contemporary source, a more modern source that referenced this source in Latin. So I can't read Latin, but... That was in so Ireland, right? In Ireland, yeah. yeah. So I sometimes I kind of was able to get close to these like really ancient primary sources, um, but language is often a barrier. Well, th that brings up a good point about how you decided to choose which killers to begin with. You you mentioned in the, in the, um, in the afterward that you left out most modern Yes, I stopped Dillers. in the 1950s, Okay, which was my agent's idea, but it was something that once she said, I was like, oh, that's that's it. That is what I want to do. Because at first I didn't really want to write the book, actually, because I didn't want to deal with like um, Myra Hindley and like some of these more crimes just seem to get more gruesome as you come closer to our present day. I don't know if it's because we have worse weapons, but there are some real nasty ones that I didn't want to write about. Who were they? Um, so the Myra, the Moore's murderess. Moore's murder. Moore's, yeah. I was actually going to ask She's about why you did not. Yorkshire murders. Yeah. I'm a coward. Well, I'll tell you why I kept it vintage. It's okay. sort of an like aesthetic choice, as I say in the intro. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone to be alive that was, you know, intimately connected to the victims or the murderers. And I wanted it to be something that we could be fascinated by and pour over without feeling totally sad and gross about the present day even Eileen who 90s is no longer that's not really modern anymore but even Eileen Wuornos um just brings up questions that are really important but really depressing and feel very relevant which is not to say that these women don't but the comparison I always use is like Jack the Ripper no one feels that weird about being fascinated by Jack the Ripper it's just so shrouded in history you can kind of be spooked out and be creeped out and like almost have a little fun with it while still be totally fascinated and, and still think it's terrible and gruesome. Um, you can't do that with who's a modern male. You, you wrote that you, um, you cried twice. I did cry. Yeah. What, what? Since writing that I've cried four times. I, I can give you a good example. Okay. And I was young, but I used to be a pen pal with John Gacy and I had, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I had letters from him, and um, I actually I had purchased one of his artworks, and I, I don't have it anymore. Um, I was in a relationship, and I moved in with the person, and they flipped out because I had. Jeez, I can't see why, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> How irrational! And I, I, I was telling Mary and Aaron, the owner of the bookstore, in the '90s, and I, and I know you remember this, Jamie, and like I, yeah, I do remember the '90s. Yeah, I, I, do, yeah. I, I barely do, but the it, underground culture there was a very it was saturated with zines and, and books and ups, there was serial killer trading cards. I mean, it was like, you know, people weren't politically correct back then. And like, to, I mean, they were, but they weren't 
I wasn't hanging out with them, that's for sure. But, um, you know, there's there was just like, you know, you think of all, like, there was a zine called Murder Can Be Fun, which was uh, yeah. which is a great, if you ever, they're online, if you guys get a chance to check it out. It was a guy named Johnny Marr, not the guy from the Smiths, but mm-hmm. it's a, another guy, and he did a zine called Murder Can Be Fun. That's where I learned about a lot of these killers. And there was bands like the Pain Teens, and like, there was, it was just kind of like, you know. It was in the culture at that time. That's yeah. certainly true. Yeah, Marilyn Manson, you know, I mean, that was a little bit later, but I mean, it it was definitely a cultural, and I think it's coming back now. We had True Detective, there's this new show on Netflix called Mindhunter, which is amazing, by the way, if anyone has seen it. We also have this book called Lady Killers about female story girls (laughs) that just came out, maybe a signifier for this. At at a time, you know, we're in a different time, you know, it's 2017 than we were in 1995, Mm -hmm. that's when I moved to Chicago, and people kind of look at this stuff differently, but also, like, you know... I got rid of all that stuff and, you know, I'm not like sad that I got rid of it, but at the time it didn't bother me. You know what I mean? So you go through these like phases in your life where different things are going to affect you in different ways. And I think also by having these killers being historical, you're not going to affect anyone that was a victim of these people or, you know, I mean, we're not getting, you know, Bathory's. 10th generation grandsons coming in here and yelling at us because yeah. we're talking about something. You know what I mean? I would you don't love know to that, know if they're out yeah. there, though. Yeah. 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 They probably are. That's an interesting point. And I, I actually hadn't thought of it. One of the questions I did have when, when reading the book was, you know, what about Alien Warnos? What about Squeaky From? What about, you know, some of the people that are around today? And Meyer Henley did, did come up. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's an interesting point because there is a line between um, – morbid fascination and then a kind of a pornography that goes along with this. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's interesting because um Jeremy's quite right. You know, there there was a, a time period about ten years ago where uh this was much more widely written about and widely talked about. And I that leads me to a question that I've been wanting to ask you. You know, most of this stuff originally started out um, in kind of late stage digital production, you know, you I mean you were writing for the All and Jezebel and oh, all right. that, and I wondered if you know when your editors approached you about that, was it because this stuff had kind of did they did they talk to you about why they wanted it in the first place? Was it something they thought was something they were trying to throw on the wall and stick, or was it you had an editor that re- remembered, you know, well back in the nineties, you know, we talked about John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck mm-hmm. all all the time. Was that something that was ever brought up with you? My editor was very young, I think. I think she might have been younger than me. So I don't think she was a, you know, like a, reading the zines and everything. Um, that's a good question. I don't really know what the answer is. I know that it seemed like since I started writing the columns, you know, things like Making a Murderer and Serial and My Favorite Murder, those have come out more recently. So I don't know if, I don't think the um, column was assigned to me because the renaissance had really happened yet. And I know I'm only I'm only talking about a span of like four years, but it really does feel like it's happened in the past two, maybe, all this new true crime stuff. There's um, a big boom in podcasts. Podcasts. Sword in the Scale, Making a Murder, and some of the other ones you mentioned. Last podcast on the left. So you're responsible for this with these columns, so right? I am a trendsetter of murder. <laughs> no, I'm not. How, how were these columns initially received when you, when you published them? Ugh, they were shockingly received really well. Um... I read the comments, which you're never supposed to do, but (laughs) it was, so it wasn't, I pitched it to the all, but they put it on their sister site, the hairpin, which is, you know, mostly um, women read it. And so I felt safe reading the comments and I don't know, people just, I mean, people love true crime. Women love true crime. I mean, most true crime fans, I I believe are women. And it really seemed to resonate with people. People were, um, we were having discussions that weren't 
mean. No one was telling me to die. You know, even if people were correcting me, like I got these Hungarian scholars <laughs> that came out of the woodwork and were like, well, some of the things you're saying about Bathory, we disagree with. But they were polite and nice and no death threats involved. So it's nice. So did you, have other, did you have death threats in your other columns? Well, I would never read the comments on any other columns, okay, so I don't okay. know, but I'm maybe okay. the worst. <laughs> yeah. What were you writing about? Just curiosity. Wasn't uh, you mean other columns? Yeah, the yeah. other columns. Like, what would be? Well, I would do like a one-off piece for Vice, and then I would like with one ha- one eye half open look at the comments, and I would see that yeah. someone was saying something in all caps, and I was like, I don't want to know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> the one that that cut the cut the sharpest was someone just said my writing was mediocre and I was like somehow that was like the worst <laughs> like that hurt so much more than like you suck go die yeah it well, was very just, personal yeah, yeah and like it's not bad just mediocre mediocre is worse than bad I think if I once had an editor uh this is many years ago when I was still working in sports uh, I went in to get a raise we were actually kind of technically on strike and so I was the second person in after the other person had gone in and kept this poor guy, uh, I'm using a polite word for this person, in, in the room for several hours. And the first thing, and I had written, by the way, I'd published in this magazine, I think 30 or, 30 or 40 pieces in the year. And uh, the, the first thing the guy says to me is, well, we can't give you a raise because your writing insults a six-year-old. And I said, well, then your readers must be no better than six-year-olds because I've published more in this magazine in a single year than anyone else in the history of the magazine. Oh. Then the guy came over the desk at me. And uh, so... <laughs> Ouch. It was a little more, you know, uh, a little Physical. more instant. You tell, Jamie. What comment. magazine yes. was it? I'm not going to name it, here, but oh. it, it, no, it no longer exists. Oh. It no longer exists, <laughs> okay. and I feel good about that. Good. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to move on, though, actually, because it's interesting. Before we before we kind of get into some of the other people in the book, it's a very interesting time to be um, a freelance writer and to be a writer in general. I came up through the newspaper system. I used to string high school games. This was in the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, worked in TV. You've been mainly on the internet, and the internet sphere is collapsing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have been laid off. Uh, one of the sites you worked for was basically put out of business and then rebought by Univision, I'm talking about Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered if you could give us you know, just some insight into being a working writer right now. Because you know, it's, I think we sit around and we say, wow, you know, Tori's got to be really successful. She's got this book out. And the reality is most working writers um, are, are really happy to take a free meal and a free drink. And right. I know this from personal experience. So I wondered if you could give you know, just some insight into that for people in the room who may be interested in <laughs> foolishly writing books and, and yes. uh, working for the women. Don't do it. No, it's, <laughs> it's uh, very fun, but oh, yeah, it's, it's very rough. There's, there's like no money. Um, I guess, so what I do is I um, pay my rent with more corporate gigs, like, you know, which I call copywriting. You can make good money writing blog posts for Company X or doing thought leadership for Company Y. Um, you can make leadership. Oh, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. <That's weird. laughs> well, we all go there, guys. It's like, you know, <laughs> Forbes, how to become an entrepreneur like me, that kind of stuff. And they're written by people like you and I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. That's great. That's awesome to know, folks. It's fun. Don't believe any of it. We don't know what we're doing. That's great. So So that's how I pay my rent. Um, The pieces for Vice, the pieces for Jezebel, um, it's just, I can't pay my rent that way. The checks come too late and they're too small. Um, What else do I do? I think you, am I giving tips on how to be a freelance writer? I think you just need to like know how to live cheap and... Understand that despite the fact that the internet 
the media world is does seem to be collapsing. There are still a ton of places that need writers. I've been an editor a couple of times. And once you're on that side, you're like, you see how rare just like a nice, dependable writer is. Not even a genius writer, just someone who will file their copy on time and will be nice on, in emails. So while, while the paychecks are very small, I think a lot of um, writers who want to go freelance see it as this impossible you know, heavens with all the doors shut. And it's really not that way. There are a lot of opportunities. You just have to be creative. Um, you know, I started out writing three posts a day for $25 a post. I just, you just learn so much. Like, of course, I would never do that now. And in retrospect, it feels a little like unethical <laughs> or whatever <laughs> that anyone asked me to do that. But and That's they're still on the internet and makes. you find them. <laughs> It's just a hustle, I guess. And yeah. I, can, I can attest to what you're saying, by the way. If I, I've been an editor for a number of years. And if somebody files their copy on time, that is like 90% of the battle. Yes, and if they're pleasant them. to boot. That's, that's pretty much how I got this radio show. It's true. Yeah. Just being pleasant. It's just like being nice and turning something in on time. Yes, that's true. And that's true. See, you can do it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys want to talk about the Nightingale? Oh, sure. Yeah. So... I'm going to slaughter this. I'm bad at pronouncing it. Um El Hassan? She went by Moulay, so we can right. call her. Oh, yeah, but Um El Hassan. I think. Yeah. Is that close yeah, enough? that sounds good to me. So you want to tell us a little bit about her? Um, and then, so she was from Algiers? She, yes. By way of Morocco? Um, vice versa. Vice Born versa. in Algiers. Okay, yeah. so she went from right. Algiers to Morocco. She was a cabaret dancer, became a brothel owner. Yes. This is the 1930s, by the way. Right. So we're moving way ahead in time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about her? And then I, had a, I wanted to talk sure. about a couple of things you wrote about uh, in the book. Sure. So um, she went by Moulay Hassan and 1930s Morocco. Um, okay, this is another one where legends, myth, and uh, language barriers. So grain of salt, grain of salt. But um, she was uh, began being a cabaret dancer very young and was lauded and was beautiful, then graduated to owning her own cabaret. And this was when Morocco um, was a French protectorate. So the French soldiers were who she courted. And if you believe some of the sources, they were who she loved. She kind of had this like deranged allegiance to the French, um, even though she herself was not French. She um, saved French soldiers twice. Um, by uh, warning them of uprisings or whatever. A thousand soldiers was her claim. She claimed to save, you know, of course she could have been doing that as a very politically savvy move to get in with the oppressors. Um, But she had this very popular brothel um, that was kind of high class, or sorry, it was a cabaret that was like high class. And then she, we lost track of her for a couple of years. She kind of went underground and um, moved to a shadier city and which I can't remember the name of right now, but um, wasn't it Fez? Her trial was in Fez. I can't remember. That's okay. Maybe it was. Um, but she, it was there that she opened a really terrible place. It was seedy. Her clients were cruel and sketchy. And um, I, she's a mystery to me and to the people who wrote about her back then, but she began treating her girls just absolutely horribly, starving them, beating them, um, and asking them to perform these really demeaning, like, dances and um, acrobatics even that involved, like, should I tell about the mint tea dance? Sure. This is a, yeah. a, a legend too, but 
Um, one involved uh, the girl would have a tray put on her head, teacups put on the tray, and then boiling mint tea put in the teacups. So she had to dance naked for these men without spilling the boiling tea. She was so skilled that allegedly she could complete it one out of every four times. But it was like basically an impossible act that resulted in her skin getting scalded. So yeah, this so was three hap- times out of four <laughs> she's getting boiling hot. This tea sounds dumped. like a right. wonderful person. Yeah. yeah. So she got Moulet got really really cruel. Um, really fast. Let's come back to this in a second. We do have to take that mandated commercial break. Guys, give it up for Tori Telfer right here. We're going to be back in just one second. So Welcome back, everybody, to I-94. So Jeremy, I know you want to jump in here, <laughs> but I'm not going to let you do it. <laughs> You're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We are with Tori Telfer, the author of Lady Killers, and she was just telling us a very gruesome story. Tori and Jeremy, take it away. So... My passion is literary fiction. My, I, I'm not just into serial killers. And one of the fascinating things is some kids found a basket. It was stinky. And these kids found a basket. And it had feet, hands, a head, its hair, a torso, and young breasts. And herbs. And herbs. Mint, fennel, <laughs> and thyme. So it was a nice mix. But it was a poultry mix, wasn't it? When she was arrested for this, the French writer Colette attended the trial I, I've never read Colette personally, um, but I've heard the name yeah. in literature classes mm-hmm. throughout the years. But she was actually quite mean about yeah. the trial, like uh, descri- descriptions and things like that. Colette was, um, I, maybe some of you have read her, very famous French writer. And she was sent over by one of the Paris newspapers to cover this trial. So she, you know, remember, French protectorate, she is coming from France. So, um, and she, her, she has this sort of beautiful, but yeah, cruel essay on Moulet where she tries, she does try to understand what would make Moulet kill, which is a courtesy that a lot of people never gave to the women in this book, just, you know, attempting to understand their psyche or their background or whatever. Um, but she did kind of have her um, colonialism glasses on and didn't quite manage to remove them i think um i'm blanking again on what she said that was cruel do you have any of the meat well okay please okay, read it. It um okay she had very dark green brown eyes lavishly treated with blue coal but when she lifted away the handkerchief to sp- handkerchief to speak all traces of elegance were lost. She was missing teeth, and her mouth, this is her mouth description, flat, ungracious, made for gossiping. How do you say Invective. that Invective. Invective and perhaps cruelty. I can't pronounce everything, but yeah. So that was just like so that was Colette Colette's description Moulet. of her, mu- her mouth. I think she just seemed really detached. It seemed it was, it was an assignment, and that was it for She did for a newspaper, for didn't she? Mm-hmm. She was, she she was at the trial new- newspaper. Yeah. We should point out that anybody that knows... African history or French history, if you've not seen the Battle of Algiers, that would take place about 15 years after this, this murder yes. case. So the, the atmosphere in this place right now is not good between the colony and the colony. Yeah, very tense. Uprisings are happening, which Moulet is, you know, who, who knows why, warning the French about. Um, and one thing I want to add is, if you're wondering why I used a French source for this chapter, um, it's because... Moroccan newspapers written in Arabic for the Moroccan people were continually shut down or, di- or didn't exist. Um, so I even had a friend um, 
who speaks Arabic go digging around in, you know, Moroccan archives and she couldn't find anything on Moulet. I'm sure, I'm sure there's something out there that was written about her. But were they under were there like underground papers? There, were, yeah, but then they would like get shut down yeah. and you know, because there were Moroccan newspapers written in Arabic for French people. The whole thing was very like pitched at the at the French to you know to show that being a protector was so awesome. So Moulet is not only mysterious because she's a serial killer, and I think serial killers will always be a little bit mysterious to those of us who are not them, but she's mysterious because what we, at least what I could find of her is um, either in French, and Colette is a primary source, I think she counts as a primary source, right? Either in French or in English translated from the French. Um, so there are a lot of layers that you have to get through to get to Moulet, and I don't think anyone, I don't think Colette got through them all, and I, I certainly didn't. Well, I think also we should point out that in that period, she would have not been considered somebody worth writing about by uh, people in Morocco because it was still a very, um, and still is, a very patriarchal place. Well, and most true. of the contemporary stuff that had been written in newspapers would not have involved women at all. It was kind of a closed space. That's a good point. And she, um, one of the things that tortured Moulet was she was not considered a respectable woman because of her line of work. And she seemed to really want to be a respectable woman. When she saved um, all those French soldiers, she was under consideration for the Legion of Honor Award, which is a really prestigious French award, and um, but French the French society people were outraged because they were like, we can't give it to someone who owns a cabaret. So that was another like sorrow of Moulet's life was that she kind of got close to a society that she seemed to want to be a part of, but could never get into it. And then, of course, there was all the death. And then she was also torturing and killing her. Uh, she was employees. not executed, right? She was not executed because she only got 10 years. Is she the one who had the kids behind, trapped in a wall? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Forgetting all the juicy details. Yes. Sorry. She was discovered, this basket was discovered with a body in it. Yeah, the kids who we talked about who found the basket of rosemary and mm -hmm. went to the police breasts. and the police went to Moulet and Moulet said what I don't know what that is and the police were about to leave when they heard a scratching uh, and a, almost a meowing sound from behind a wall and Moulet kept it very cool she said oh that's a cat we were doing repairs it got walled up in there and the police were like oh we'll help you get the cat out we'll break down the wall she's like no 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 I'm gonna hire a professional who can do a better job than you 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 guys don't know how to get cats out of walls shoo 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 and um <laughs> she uh, they were about to leave when they heard a little starved little voice say help there are five of us here and we are dying break down the wall there are basically kids in there I mean these are emaciated you know four, 13 14 15 year olds who um horrible and they were later like brought up onto the stands at the trial and they just didn't have anything to say yeah, they right. were like they were colette described them as um like cattle which is an another evidence of her cattle sort of without cruelty. memory cattle without memory yeah. like they seemed to just be so traumatized that they almost didn't remember although they did scream when they saw moulet in the courtroom and they were very very thin i think um the fact that she wasn't executed brings up kind of an interesting point uh, well, throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. I think most of the women were sentenced oh, yeah. to death. But, oh, yeah. Um, no, no. no? Most, most of them were, were not. not. And that, the reason no. was because they didn't want to 
Because you didn't execute, yeah, yeah, you didn't basically. execute. Most were most of the prosecuting attorneys were real, went Railing real for hard it. for the death yeah. sentence. Tilly, Tilly, Tilly Klimek is our Chicago She's, lady. Yeah, she was the Chicago. She didn't murderess. get the death sentence. Okay. Um, but but the contrast with her was that there were several Chicago Chicago female serial killers or husband murderers before her who got off completely because they're better looking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tilly, does I'm just curious if anyone here knows about Tilly Klimek. She's a okay. She was Northside. That's why. What'd you say? Northside. <laughs> that's Probably true. A Cubs fan. She was a Ukrainian village. <laughs> you can watch the Cubs Whoa. lose anytime, guys. Anytime. <laughs> um, no comment. Tilly was a Ukrainian village girl um, in the 1920s in Chicago, which was a time when Chicago was just generally completely out of control. There was so much going on that Tilly was not apprehended for years, even though all her husbands were dying, because just the city had other things to worry about. Um, and she was a serial killer at an interesting time because there were all these beautiful husband killers. Now, granted, Tilly, serial killer. These other women just killed one person. But it's true. All of these women were going free. In fact, the musical Chicago is based on two of them, um, Beautiful Balula and who's the other one? Sexy Sadie. No, it's not that. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the Manson girls. (laughs) But Tilly was... Stylish Belva. Stylish Belva. How could I forget about Belva? So, um, yeah, and Tilly was older... um, I personally think she kind of had a haunting beauty, but who? no one asked me. Everyone said she was just so hideous. Um, and she was also a Polish immigrant and did not have, you know, she didn't speak perfect English. So um, she was, she was other, you know, she was, people didn't like her. People weren't latching on to her dreamy silken curls like they were beautiful Balula. <laughs> she used, she used arsenic in, in most of the, um, most of the yes. women in this book used Rat arsenic poison. to poison, yeah. Yes. Or cyanide, right? Wasn't a couple, wasn't they were very cyanide. commonly available. I mean, you could get oh, it yeah. just about anywhere at any farm. Yeah, when, when did they, they stop? When did they stop selling it? Yeah. They still sell it. It's called well, rat poison. Well, what changed is we have the science to to yeah. find out if there's arsenic. Well, I mean, some of these some of these women, there was a science. But um, you, like, in this book, a lot, yes, a lot of women used arsenic, and the husband would die, or the mom would die, or whatever, or the kid would die, and the doctor would come over and say, oh, it looks like typhoid, or, you know, arsenic poisoning looked like other things, right, right. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know, it just seems like today, the doc- we know too much, doctors would instantly be like, their breast smells like garlic, their limbs are stiff, it's obviously arsenic, why did you even like, yeah. think you could get away with this? Part, part of it was, though, that people forget that until like the 1950s when you had swab tests, a lot of this stuff was very difficult to tell. Cyanide in particular, mm-hmm. which smells like almonds, yeah. um, and it's very common... My mom happens to be a murder mystery writer, so don't, don't read anything into this information, <laughs> folks. Um, it was a very popular way to, to kill people because it was, it was almost indetectable unless you got a whiff of the very telltale scent of almonds. Arsenic was a lot uh, messier, you know what I mean, because it was, it, it was easier to find out about. But until the 1950s, there really were no crime labs in America, and there were really no crime labs anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the 70s that you started to get advanced science where you could actually understand what was going on in a, in a dead body. Previously, you know, people just got bodies in the morgue and were like, well, if there's no determination, it's undetermined and we just stick them somewhere. Um, and I worked in a morgue, so I can attest to this. But um, 
which is actually a very fun job, by the way, if you're asking. Uh, you know, if, if there was no immediate determination of death, you know what I mean? If it wasn't blunt force trauma or whatever, and if the person wasn't, you know, if the person was homeless or the person was uh, not somebody that anybody was going to ask questions about, you didn't waste any time on it because the police weren't going to prosecute anyway. So some of that also played into this. And I think, you know, it's interesting to talk about this because some of the stuff that goes on, and, and Tilly's a great case because you mentioned it. She was, she was an other. She was an immigrant who didn't speak English. She was vilified in the media. She was called ugly. And as Dame Darcy's illustration in this book makes clear, she actually was not ugly. She was a fairly straightforward-looking person. But she was set up to be this evil thing in Chicago society. And there was a real anti-immigrant tenor mm -hmm. to what was going on here. Jamie, and do you remember the out. name of the book? We had the... Chicago Review Press on, and we mm -hmm. read a book. I read that oh, book about, pirates. and it was an Italian immigrant. Oh, right, right. And mm -hmm. she got set up for murder, which she didn't commit. She went to the death penalty, and they also referenced these beautiful women. That's I right. know what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. The, it has prey in it, I but can't I can't remember. remember. Ugly prey. Ugly prey, right. Yeah, and, we, and we talked we about had that the, quite a bit. Uh, yeah. publisher of that mm -hmm. on the show, and it was the same exact story, but an Italian immigrant, and they ended up, she ended up going to the death row. And I, I, I did a little research on rough on rats. That's yes. the name of the poison that Tilly used. It was a household. Yeah, and I, I actually want to get T-shirts with the oh like, my the please logo. Yeah, please if I get one, for sure. But it's an amazing. Uh, the it's rough on the, rats. Don't die in the house. It says unbeatable exterminator, and it's the old reliable that never fails. It was such an ironic uh, weapon because yeah, it was a little tin and it had a rat on its back with like cross eyes, X eyes. And it said, don't die in the house. Yeah, it's and amazing. Put it outside. Tilly was killing people in the house with it. I want to move on to one other person, but I also want to recommend, if anybody has, has that book with questions, if you could just hand it to the front, and then we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left. We'll get some questions for Tori here. So pass that up when you can, please. I want to talk a little bit about Kate Bender, because oh, Kate Bender oh. is an unusual person in this book in that she killed with her family. And it's a wonderful story. If, you're, if you guys are fans of horror films, which I, I know Jeremy is, so I'm not going to ask him, but all this stuff, uh, Kate Bender, if you, if you don't know. If that I can, scared me the most. This yeah. one scared me so the most. So Kate Bender and her family ran kind of a roadside inn in oh, Kansas. Man. And basically without spoiling too much, because this is a book about serial killers, what she did was <laughs> whack a whole bunch of people. Her family would then uh, rob them and bury them in their orchard. And they got away with it. This is the kind of interesting thing. They didn't really get caught until they happened to murder, I believe it was a judge who was coming through doctor. town, a doctor or judge, you know, one of those fancy people, you know, uh, <laughs> that had a lot of money on him. They killed him. He was actually missed. Uh, there was a manhunt. The benders, uh, and they found a bunch of bodies in the orchard because that's what they've been doing. They've been robbing him and putting him in the orchard. The benders got away. And what was interesting is the contemporary accounts of the time, and you reference them all through this, and this is, this is actually the most fascinating thing to me. It really played up this idea of, it's a very American trope, being lonely on the road and vulnerable in a house. And so many movies have been made about this. And then these people disappear into the night. And many of these contemporary accounts talk about how they'd had sightings of the benders. And of course they didn't. They, they arrested people who they thought were the benders and they weren't. Uh, these people just vanished into thin air. And you could kind of do that in this country at the time. It's a very, very spooky story. And it's led to so many things. Last House on the Left comes immediately to mind as a psycho, psycho obviously. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get your take on this. Did you choose this, this particular story because it was so kind of American Gothic? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I thought the Bender story was very, had sort of a poetic resonance that not all of them necessarily had. I'm glad to hear that it scared you the most. Um, 
because it is very scary. And, and yeah, it has that horror movie feel. I wouldn't even believe that it really happened. I would just believe it was an American Gothic uh, myth. But there are photos of the orchard with open graves. Um, I think it was the collective element, the whole family working yeah. together. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Oh. So it was this whole family, they, they almost literally materialize in Kansas. No Lots one knows where they came from. crazy in Kansas. Yeah, Kans- this Kansas. is 80 years before In Cold Blood, I think. Yeah. Oh, I hate In Cold Blood, aka I love it, but it scarred me for life. <laughs> they Kansas was had only been a state for nine years, is the 1870s, and um, it was sort of a criminal hideout. So if you're a criminal back east, need it, you know, things are getting hot, you go to Kansas, which is probably what happened to the Bender, which is probably why the Benders ended up there. I'm sure they were running for something from so something Kansas back east. Is our Australia. Kansas is our Australia. I said that once, and no, no one laughed, so I never Australia. said it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one laughs at my jokes usually anyway, so <laughs> it makes me feel better. We're laughing while you. Uh, we've got some, got some great questions here. Uh, eight or nine people have, have put this in, and I want to start with the one that goes right for the throat here. <laughs> A woman named Lapita has asked, when writing about these killer women, did you ever secretly entertain the idea of whether you could or would do the murderous things these women did yourself. Oh, Lupita, under the right, <laughs> Under the right circumstances, of course, and were any women, in your opinion, justified? Wonderful question. Um, I have had fantasies of people being scared of me, especially men. There's something kind of thrilling about that, of just being seen as like, a dark figure in an alley or something. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily morally good, but that's the truth. Um, I, I would never kill anyone unless they did something to my family. And then, you know, maybe I would find a love for it and go on a spree. <laughs> but um, I do think some of the women in this book were at least quasi-justified. Sorry, Lupita, I just, <laughs> I'm trying to talk into the mic. I wish I could make eye contact with you. Um, the there's this group of women in Hungary, the Angel Makers, who really I think are maybe the most empathetic. I don't know if you guys felt that way. Um, they kind of lived this trapped existence in this tiny town where you couldn't get divorced, where there were a lot of bad husbands, a lot of poverty, uh, just a lot of inescapable things, and they all sort of told each other how to kill with flypaper by dissolving flypaper in water and it would create like a poisonous tea. So justify, you know, empathy, you can at least sympathize with them. Um, you know, you can at least see why they did it. And yeah, I don't know if I want to go on the record saying justified, but I oh, come on, Tori. it's justified. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Robbie asks, do you feel comforted at all that such awful things happened in times before our own? Yeah. So comforting. So many yeah, bad things are happening now that... Oh, such as what? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's another the po- super that's another volcano under Yellowstone that's going to kill us all. Okay. I'll say that one. Okay. Um... <laughs> A super idiot running our country. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you, you said oh, no. it, don't. don't. Um, another guess... whole, that's another show, Jeremy. That's, <laughs> oh, yeah, hit, that's sorry, hitting left with the Klotsky brothers. I guess there is something almost, some of these crimes, there is something almost quaint and old-fashioned about them because they were so different, like the methods are so different that, um, you know, I would almost rather, I don't want to go back to the, 
no, I don't know. I don't think I feel comforted because the world is so is scarier. Like I think guns are so terrifying and there aren't any guns in this book, I don't think. So no, I don't feel comforted, but I wish I did. <laughs> I feel drinking boiled flypaper tea is terrifying too. Yeah, yeah, I know, but it's like you can really only do one or maybe two at a time. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Fair Depending enough. on how big your tea party is. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Luz asks, which of the women you researched, uh, not necessarily wrote about precisely, gave you nightmares? Oh. Well, you think I'm a psycho if I say no, I didn't have any nightmares <laughs> while writing this, no. Luz. Um, people always think that I must have been scared for the two years working on this, but um, I it felt so clinical to me just because it was like my job. Um, I don't know who asked this, but I'm trying to make eye contact with you. Yeah, where's Luz? Um, <laughs> I, okay. um, I did feel like a, either a detachment, like I'm just writing about this person and it's you know my day job, or an empathy sometimes, like, oh, this person has such a terrible life and then was called ugly in the media so many times. Like, why do we need to be talking about how they look? And um, so no actual nightmares, but in terms of who I think is the most terrifying, maybe Kate Bender, who we talked about, or um, this Russian woman from the 1700s, Daria Nikolaevna Saltikova who's one of my favorites because I'm, pos- I'm pretty sure no one's like ever heard about her. <laughs> well, I like that you said she was in the intro to War and Peace. She Tolstoy w- wrote, wrote Tolstoy about her. mentioned her nickname as an okay. example of how... So wait, can I, can I explain the Tolstoy quote? Because it actually yeah. goes back to Robbie's question. Sure. So in the intro to War and Peace, which I haven't read, so don't be too impressed. <laughs> Tolstoy says like... Um, he says something like, people think I'm doing such a bad... What does he say? He basically says people think that I shouldn't be writing about um, the savagery of our time or something. Wait, I might be getting this. I'm sorry. I'm totally butchering this. But basically, he he talks about Daria's time, which was, you know, a generation or two before he's writing this. And he says... um, Oh, he says, people think that time was so savage because we have our people like Daria who killed um, her servant girls, hundreds almost. Um, People think the past was so savage and that now we're so civilized. And he says, like, that's not true. Back then, people still fell in love and went to work and blah, blah, blah. And right now, people are still butchering each other. And I thought that was a good quote, um... And that's sort of, I guess, how I feel about Robbie's question and just how I feel about everything is like, we do have a fallacy. We do tend to think like, this is when things are bad. This is when people were bad. So there's no hope is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, there's no hope. There's no hope. I'm sorry. I think I am scared of you. Yeah. But, <laughs> or is it just human nature never really changes? Yeah, you had a couple of great quotes know. at the end too, I think from Solzhenitsyn, another Russian yeah. writer, and Joyce Carol Oates. The Russians really sort of... Put They're their downers, finger man. on. They're downers <laughs> if they get it. <laughs> I'm glad you used Joyce Carol Oates too, because she does talk a lot about um, uh, the horror of modern society and male dominance, and how men basically commit horrific acts on women and get away with it, or or attempt to get away with it. And it's looked differently when a woman commits a horrific mm-hmm. act on a man. Like, oh, oh, she couldn't be a serial killer. She's a cute girl from down the street. You know that. And yeah. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, 
I like that you talked about her. I'm a, I'm a Joyce Carol Oates fan, and mm-hmm. you know she's always kind of talked about kind of the dark side of humanity. But yeah. um, and I, I think it was a great uh, inclusion in, in the afterward. We only have uh, time for like one more question, and then uh, unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up. But Yasenia asks, did I pronounce that right, Yasenia? Did I get that right? Yasenia, okay. (laughs) Who was your least favorite person to write about today? Ooh, I haven't ever been asked that. Just take a quick peek at the table of contents. Well, while you're doing that, if if you guys want to know, I know you guys gave up a lot to be here. I can ensure you that the Cubs are losing. So, you know, you made the right choice. Oh, you guys did give up a lot to be here since there is the game. Um, I struggled writing about this woman named Anna Marie Hahn, who killed in Cincinnati in the 30s, because she was so cold I think she was probably like a classic psychopath which it took me a sadly long time to sort of like realize she was so I couldn't for a lot of the others I was able to get in kind of like an empathetic place where I was or at least you know yeah an empathetic place to some degree and for her she killed um lonely old men who no one cared about um and they were so there was something so callous and unfeeling about her murders um I'm in a way I don't know I just couldn't like oh I couldn't like get excited <laughs> about her but actually she was the chapter I y- cried yeah, twice yeah, about yeah, that yeah. he mentioned earlier because um she got the death penalty um and she was the first woman um at least I think in Ohio to get the death penalty and she her walk to the electric chair was so sad and ironic she would she total meltdown she was like you guys know what a psychopath is like you know cold composed charming charismatic and it was like that mask was ripped off when she finally had to die and it's like it's so tragic and it's also makes me so angry because it's like oh anna (laughs) death sucks (laughs) oh it's it's scary to know you're gonna die like her victims knew she was poisoning him so that's when i cried twice because it was just like I don't know, like, it's so ironic seeing this killer want to live. So I wept, but um, she was hard to write about. <laughs> Guys, we only have a quick second to wrap everything up. Any last words for us, Tori? Other than thank you and go Cubs. Um, they're, they're not going, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope you guys like the book if you read it and let me know what you think. And I promise it's not. There are some lighter hearted chapters. So if you want me to tell you which ones won't give you nightmares, I can do that. I did it to my sister. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank, thank you for coming you. to Pills and Books. Give it up for Tori Telfer. Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. Additional music from the show is from the International Anthem Archive. This episode was taped in front of a live audience on October 19th and originally aired on October 22, 2017. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. Additional music from the show is from the International Anthem Archive. This episode was taped in front of a live audience on October 19th and originally aired on October 22nd, 2017.